you all just saying that you would put your trust in God alone, he would be your firm foundation. So my question for you, who is this God? If we're going to put our trust in him alone, if he's going to be our firm foundation, we need to know who he is. We need to know this God who we are going to depend on. That's going to be the theme here in Exodus 3, where we'll be going here shortly. Um, Our firm foundation is in God, but who is this God? And that's the question Moses actually asks of God. If I'm going to trust you, who are you? Uh, A couple of weeks back, we were discussing some remodeling in one of the family's uh, houses in our church, and uh, plumbing, I don't mind doing some plumbing, I don't mind doing some electrical, and they talked about doing some flooring uh, with the, the vinyl flooring. And Emily was really quick to say, don't ask Nathan, he can't run a saw. <laughs> you want to know the qualifications of someone you're going to trust, right? You want to know whether they are capable of doing the work that you're going to ask them to do. That's what we're going to be studying today as we look in Exodus 3. But before we go to Exodus 3, I want to do our memory verse of the month. Our memory verse is Titus 2.1. Let's say this all together. Titus 2.1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. Our goal is to know sound doctrine. Doctrine that is based on the Bible. Doctrine on which we can depend. And so last week, as we are doing this mini-series, we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. And this week, we're going to go further, and we're going to talk about God, the existence of God, a fundamental doctrine that we hold. I want us to look briefly at the doctrine of God as stated in the Baptist faith and message. And I want to read this to you. It says, there is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal, triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. That is our doctrine of God. It is fundamental to what we believe, but it also should impact us. The doctrine of God is not just some theoretical construction constructed over millennia. It is a fundamental aspect of who we are today. As I read through this doctrinal statement of God, I see all sorts of different historical discussions that have taken place. If people have asked questions about God and they're answered in this doctrine as people have dealt with this over history. But more than that, I see an impact on who we are today. So turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. And so we're going to pick up. And in Exodus chapter 3, there's an interesting situation that has arisen. So you may remember back in Genesis, God called Abraham out of Ur 
God presented himself to Abraham, and God promised Abraham that he would turn Abraham into a great nation. Several generations passed, and Abraham's descendants wound up as slaves in Egypt. But a promised deliverer was born, Moses, who knew nothing of God. The people really didn't know God at this point in their history. They knew that they had been promised to leave the land of, of Egypt, but they really didn't know much about God. And that's where our story picks up, is Moses is being introduced to God. And so in Exodus chapter 3, God gives Moses a charge. God charges Moses with responsibility for leading his people out of Egypt. And Moses is going to ask a very, very important and profound question. If I'm going to lead your people out of Egypt, if I'm going to take on this responsibility, I've got one question that really matters to me. Who are you? Because if I'm going to put it all on the line, I need to know. Because you see, if we believe in God, then we need to put it all on the line for God. But if you're going to put it all on the line, you need to know on who you're putting on the line for. And that's the question that Moses really is asking here in Exodus 3, 11 through 17. Let's read this. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. It says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, the first thing that God really conveys to Moses, the important thing that God is trying to teach Moses here, is that Moses, and likewise we, serve and worship an eternally immutable, self-existent God. We serve and we worship an eternally immutable, self-existent God. We're going to have to sort of tear into these terms a little bit. We'll do that. God had asked Moses to do the impossible, to go against the mighty Egyptian empire, an empire that had been around for centuries, had been powerful for centuries, had built the great pyramids. And God says, lead my people out of there. Go against that empire. 
Moses needed confidence that God was with him. He needed confidence that went beyond himself. He starts by asking, who am I? What in the world are you asking of me? This is an impossible task. Who am I to be able to do this? Verses 11 and 12 remind me of an important fact about God. You see, unlike a genie, God does not serve us, but we serve God. Moses says, who am I? And God said, I will be with you. You're doing my work. You're not doing your own work. The answer to who am I is, yeah, you're right, you're nothing. That's God's response. Moses, you asked who you are? I'll give you your answer. You're nothing. And that's a good thing, because I will be with you. I'm not a genie obeying your commands. No, you are my servant obeying my commands, and I will be with you. God gives Moses two key elements here. The first thing that God does is he gives Moses a promise, an assurance that he will be with him. No greater assurance, by the way. God says, I will be with you. You can have a confidence because I will be with you. The other promise that God gives to Moses is a sign. God says, I'll give you a sign, but I want you to look carefully at the sign. This is like the sign that nobody wants to actually get as their sign. God says, this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. You'll succeed. There's your sign. It's called a fulfillment sign. It's not a a sign that you can tangibly touch right now and say, I'm going to do this because I got this sign right here. No, God says, here's the sign. I'm going to make you succeed, and then you'll know it was me. That's kind of a scary sign. But that's what God calls on Moses because, you see, God's not a genie. God does it his way. Unlike a genie, God doesn't serve us. We serve God. In verses 13 and 14, I'm reminded that unlike anything that we know, unlike anything we have experienced, God is pure actuality. Now, there's a philosophical term for you. It comes from Aristotelian philosophy. Okay, In, in Aristotelian philosophy, there are two things. There are actualities and potentialities. Okay, A potentiality is something that could exist. An actuality is something that must exist. Everything you know, everything you know besides God is potentiality. Think about the chair you're sitting on. Does the chair you're sitting on have to exist? No. In fact, there was a time when the chair you're sitting on did not exist. And there will be a time when the chair you're sitting on does not exist. Hopefully it's not in the next 45 minutes. It is a potential. It's not an actual. It's a potentiality in in philosophy. God is actuality. It is impossible for God not to exist. God is existence. The people of Israel lived in a polytheistic, pantheistic, synchristic world. What does that mean? They believed in many gods. They believed God was everything. And they believed that whatever you believed was good to go. Okay? Polytheism, pantheism, syncretism. 
There's many gods, God's everything, and whatever you believe, you're good. God wipes that out in one simple phrase. Moses asks, who am I speaking with? Who are you? You know, the Egyptians have all these gods. There's all this stuff. Who are you? And God gives a really, really precise answer. Haya asher haya. I am who I am. God simply is. Pure actuality. No beginning, no end. Simply existence. It's interesting to, to really break this down. God's using the verb to be. I am. I exist. A little bit later in the passage, God gives his, his formal name. So if you look in verse 15, depending on your translation of the Bible, halfway through the verse, it says, the Lord God, and Lord is probably all capitalized letters. The name there, the Hebrew word there, is Yahweh. Yahweh comes as a derivation of the verb to be. God's name is existence. The name that he gives Israel is simply existence. You will call me by my existence. All the other gods, false gods, have a variety of different names. The name of the real God is existence. Just an interesting aside, textual note. Yahweh was the name that that Abraham knew God by. It was the name that Isaac knew God by. And it was the name that Jacob knew God by. But the name of God, properly used, does not appear after Genesis 39 until Jacob uses it one more time on his deathbed in Genesis 49. It seems like Jacob's sons forgot the name of God when we read through the the Old Testament. My guess is that the Hebrews, by the time of Moses, have lost God's name. They have forgotten who God is. And God introduces himself back to Moses as the existent one. Unlike anything we have experienced, though, God is also immutable. Not just existent, but immutable. Immutable is the fancy theological word that means unchanging. He doesn't change. And where do I get this from? Look at how he also introduces himself. He introduces himself as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God introduces himself as the God who has been, who hasn't changed. He was the God of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac. He was the God of Jacob. He was immutable in that he never changed. God's reminding Moses that just like he was with Abraham, just like he was with Jacob, so he was going to be with Moses, just as his fathers had trusted him, so Moses could trust him. So let me give you an action step coming out of this passage. I want you to think for a second. I want you to identify where you struggle the most, your biggest struggle. Do you, ex- do you struggle? Do you struggle to accept that you serve God instead of God serving you? 
Is that the area that you struggle with the most? Or maybe do you struggle to accept that God truly exists? That he is pure actuality? Do you struggle to accept that the God of miracles, the God of the Bible is your God and he's unchanging, that he can still do miracles today? God's characteristics are important. The fact that he's not a genie, but rather we serve him, that matters. You may struggle to accept that though. You may struggle to believe that God truly exists. Or you may struggle to believe that God is unchanging, that he still can do miracles today. Where do you struggle the most? We could end it there, but I didn't. I want to turn to Psalm 8. Because it's not just God's existence that I want to talk about today, but I want to talk about his majesty because the two are intimately tied together. In Psalm 8, I want you to see some of this God that we serve. So let's read Psalm 8 together. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What I want you to see here in Psalm 8 is that God is the most formidable word ever spoken. God, the most formidable word ever spoken. You see, Psalm 8 is largely considered a psalm that describes the position of man in the created order. But man's existence, remember, we are potentiality. You don't have to exist. God instead chose to make you exist. Man's existence in the created order is solely dependent on God's existence. And so when we read Psalm 8, we see man's position in the created order only in relation to God. The first thing I see is that God's majesty is beyond comprehension. So I want to look at this text just a little bit with you. It starts out with, Lord, our Lord. And if you again look at your capitalization in your Bible, you may notice that the first instance of Lord is capitalized, and the second instance of Lord is not. That is because the Hebrews would have pronounced it Adonai, Adonai, because the Hebrews did not want to pronounce God's proper name of Yahweh because it was so honored. So in Hebrew, when you are reading in Hebrew and you come across the word Yahweh, 
you don't say it. Instead, you say Adonai. Here in the Hebrew text, it says, I'm going to say it, Yahweh Adonai. Lord, our Lord. Adonai, my Adonai. Yahweh, my master. That's the meaning of it. God, his majesty is beyond comprehension because the existent one is our master. I was thinking about the idea of the existent one being my master, and it got me thinking, if anybody here was the chief of staff for the president, we would know because they would tell us. Right? You would brag. Or if you were the personal chauffeur for Tom Brady, you'd let us know. The places you had been, the people you'd talk to. We are the servants of the existent God of the universe. His majesty is beyond comprehension. In fact, it goes on to say, how majestic is your name? What does God's name mean? To exist. How majestic is your existence in all the earth? You've set your glory in the heavens. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Verses 3 to 4, in fact. Because in verses 3 to 4, we see that God's creation is just the tip of the iceberg. David goes on and says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Have you looked up into the night sky lately? I encourage you to. The work of God's fingers. I want to tell you just a little bit about the heavens. Um, So the earth has a radius, so from the middle to the edge, of 3,959 miles. Okay, It's about 24,000 miles around, but its radius is 3,959 miles. Just to give you an idea, the radius of Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, is 43,000 miles. Okay, So I've got an image. Um, if we can pull up the first image, those are relative sizes of the planets in our solar system. So you may see the Earth pretty small. Remember, God's fingers created. Okay, So ultimately, though, you... Uh, You probably see the sun there. The sun has a radius of 432,000 miles. Actually, the sun is so big that if the sun was here, the earth would, and if the sun was where the earth was at, the moon would be inside the sun. It's enormous. Actually, it'd be way inside the sun. But our sun is a pretty average star. Can we go to the next image there? So uh, you've got the Earth, then you've got the Earth compared to Jupiter. Then you've got Jupiter compared to a small star and then compared to our sun. But there are bigger stars than our sun. Sirius is uh, 1.7 times the size of our sun. Uh, Once you get bigger than the sun, they stop measuring things in miles, and they start measuring it in suns. I'm serious, because it's so big. It gets bigger. Alderban is 45 times the sun. 
So you can see that one over on the right-hand side. The orbit of Earth around the sun is 214 suns, the radius of it is. So in order to get from Earth to the sun, you'd have to stack 214 suns to get there. Okay? That's how far away we are. Betelgeuse, so that's in number five there. Betelgeuse is 764 suns. The orbit of Jupiter. So uh, about a week ago, if you looked in the night sky, you could actually see Jupiter rising. And the orbit of Jupiter is 1,100 out there. VY Canis Majoris. So this is the biggest known star is 1,420 times, it's like the size of our solar system. Look at Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. That's the God that we serve. In verses 5 through 8, we're reminded that man's significance is only through God. Verse 5 says, You've made them, man, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with honor. With honor, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. God, you as the supreme creator of the universe, have defined man's role. Man's significance is only through God. So let me give you an action step. Take a moment and visualize God's majesty as best you can. How do you imagine God's majesty? What I want to tell you is ultimately that genuine belief in the great I am will change you. God says, I am. Tell the people that my name is I am. My name is existence. Because you see, genuine belief in the great I am will change you. There are four responses to God's existence. The first category is those who deny the existence of God. Psalm 14.1 calls these people fools. I know that's harsh language. It's not my harsh language. That's God's harsh language. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Category two, though, these are people who believe in the concept of God. Eh, there's like got to be something out there that's sort of like a God, but they don't have a personal relationship with the God. God is the great I am, but he reveals himself. He gave his name to Moses. God has revealed himself. He wants a relationship. The third category of people are people who believe in the God of the Bible and have come to know a need based on that belief in the God of the Bible. You see, when we are faced with the God of the Bible and we recognize there is an existing God, immediately on recognizing who God really is, we will begin to recognize who we really are. And we'll realize that I don't live up to the standard of that God. I can't comprehend the standard of that God. You see, category three are people who recognize God and recognize that they need a savior. Ultimately, Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, 
to pay for our sin problems, our failures to live up to God's standard. Category four are individuals who believe in the God of the Bible and strive to make that God the center of their life. That's the goal. To first accept that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you don't have to meet God's standard. And then to live with God as the center of your life. Trying to live as God is the center of your life. The hymn, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. I want to read to you from the chorus. It says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That should be our prayer. We are prone to wonder, but we recognize it. And we respond to God's existence by saying, take my heart and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So how do we do that? Well, I have nine actions, nine actions that you can take. I call these daily tuning, things that you can do. So let me give you some actions that you can do. The first action that you can take is you can simply gaze. By the way, these are written in your bulletin as well. Gaze. Take time and gaze at God. Look at him. Imagine his majesty. Stand in awe of God. Just as if you were looking at a sunset or looking at the mountains or looking at a really nice car. Or in my case, an airplane. Emily and I were at the airport last week, and we were driving across the ramp, and the F-8 team was sitting there getting ready to go for flying over the stadium, and we gazed at it. <laughs> Gaze at God. Search. Search for God. Search the scriptures. Read the Bible, not just to read the Bible, but to search for who God is, who he's revealed to be. On Thursday, no, Friday, as I was reading through Isaiah, something about God hit me. We'll get to it in a sermon. But I was so excited, I went and knocked on my door. I was like, I've got to tell you something. That's how we should be about God, where we're excited as we search. If you want to go with my airplane example, Emily hates going on walks with me sometimes when there's a lot of air traffic because I'm like, oh, what's that? And, can you please just walk with me and pay attention? But I'm always looking. That's how we should be with the Bible, where we're searching for God. Worship God. I mean it. How many times do we worship God in the week? I hope it's not just Sunday morning. Take time to worship God. We have a tendency to make idols of things. You want to know what the solu- one of the solutions to idolatry is? To worship God purposefully. You're making an idol of something? Put it away and turn on some music and worship God. That's the solution to idolatry is to go to the real God. Surrender. Turning yourself over to God. Turning over your personality, your mentality, your finances, 
your concerns. Surrender to God. Examine yourself. Next week, we're going to talk about God's holiness. But before we get there, we can still examine ourselves in light of who God is and recognize sin in our life. When we examine ourselves and we recognize sin, we should confess that sin to God. Cry out to him. Ask him to help you with your sin. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, cry out to God, accepting that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. And after you've cried out to God, celebrate, because you have been forgiven. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you cry out to God and confess your sin, then you celebrate, because you've been forgiven. And finally, never forget to repeat. Don't do it once. Repeat. Remember, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wonder, so we repeat day in and day out, daily tuning our heart to God. You see, ultimately, belief in God leads to humility because we recognize our failed broken state, and God's salvation. So my action step for you today, my final action step, I gave you nine actions. They're written in your bulletin if you need to look at them. Pick one and practice. That might be gazing at God. It might be searching. You might need to practice worship this week or surrender. Maybe you need to more regularly examine your life. Maybe you need to confess sin. Or maybe you know of your sin, but you need to cry out to God. Maybe your life needs to be marked by more celebration of God's forgiveness. Pick one of those actions and practice this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the eternally existent God. Your greatness is wrapped up in your name. Your existence is itself majestic. But Lord, you did not leave us without evidence of your existence. When we consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the sun, the moon, the stars, little pieces of evidence of who you are and your greatness and your majesty. Father, I pray that you would lead us to gaze at who you are, to bow down and worship as we search your word, as we surrender ourselves to you. But Father, I also pray that we would confess our sins, cry out to you for salvation, ultimately knowing that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for that sin. 
that your grace is greater than our sin. Let us celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.